So welcome everyone to the third session for the year. It's now the 19th of January. And we're just starting by uh, focusing on the sound of the music, the background music, which is a drone instrument called the tambura. So this drone instrument can be used as a practice to bring the awareness to rest on just one thing and that is the repetitive sound of the instrument. There's sort of a paradox in this approach in that the sound is both uninteresting in that, that there's not a lot of variation but at the same time it's strangely captivating it draws you in Sound is really a very powerful modifier of mood. So if we choose a soothing sound, it can be a very effective method of just recentering ourselves. There's a spaciousness about the simplicity of the sound that gives the mind room to expand into a more infinite state of being. In fact, there is a centering technique or a dharana from the very ancient text, a yoga text called Vinyara Bhairava or the Divine Consciousness. And there are 112 techniques, but there's one in particular that says to focus the attention on a sound or on some music. And notice the experience of the pure enjoyment of the music. First there's the music, and then there's the awareness of the enjoyment, and then you move into the enjoyment itself, into the state of enjoyment. And it feels uplifting. And then the third stage of this technique is that you move into the source of the enjoyment, where is the enjoyment felt. Or another way of doing it is that you abandon yourself to the enjoyment. So you release, you surrender into the enjoyment.
and if the mind intervenes and thoughts come, you just repeat the process, you come back to the sound. And then to the feeling that you encounter when you hear the sound, assuming it's a pleasant sound, you go into the enjoyment. And then you just let go. Gradually bring the awareness back to the breath or to the music first, I guess, because that's what we do in. So back to the sound and then to the body. Finally to the room. And then you come back. You notice the state of the mind as you re-enter awakening. some release. Mm. I would get this idea of releasing, find, locating the enjoyment and releasing into the enjoyment, becoming the enjoyment. I know it sounds a bit cliche, become the enjoyment. <laughs> but that's really what you're doing and what they're talking about is the collapse of the separation between the perceiver and the object of perception. We'll do another one. Um, we did actually, Phil and I did it yesterday when we were training, that you take the candle, so you can do it with a visual object as well. So if you take the candle flame and you allow the, this is another dharana actually, another centering practice, which is very common, but um, very subtly powerful practice. So you just allow the awareness to rest gently, but un flinchingly with the flame. So you allow a constant stream of awareness to be directed to the flame and nothing else but the flame. Remember you have to do this very effortlessly. If thoughts or distractions come, you just return to the flow of awareness to the flame. Aware, without trying to put language to it, label it, describe it, you're just observing it very passively. You don't even have to say it's a flame, it's just something. It's a bit trance-like really, isn't it? So you keep doing it, keep the gaze, we'll do this for a couple of minutes and you'll see, you'll start to feel something change.
want you to notice the mind when you do this, when you're completely captivated by the flame. <coughs> Just observe the contents of the mind. While still holding the awareness with the flame. Now close the eyes and hold the after image of the flame, if you can imagine that. Or whatever you encounter, just rest the eyes closed. Now observe the contents of the mind. you see an after image or a dot or something, just continue allowing the awareness to be captivated and held by that that you perceive. And again observe the contents of the mind. And then gradually you can become aware of the body. Take a deep breath. And return to the room. So what do you notice? I don't know if I've ever felt this, but like, I, like, the entire room, like, fuzzed away. Mm. And everything was black. It was really, really cool. <laughs> It's a very cheap form of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone else find something similar? That there was a, just, just everything dissolved? Yeah, just became sort of uh, out of focus. Yeah. yeah. Yeah? A bit easier when my eyes were open too, I was just focusing on that and then... There was only one yeah. thing, yeah. whereas in the closed eyes yeah. there's other things. Yeah, there's other things jumping. Did anyone get a clear after image with the closed eyes, mm. like a red dot? Anything coloured there or yeah. negative image of the flame? I had a negative image. Yeah, so that's fine too. And you can do that. This is what you do when the eyes get tired initially with this practice. It's called trataka. Trataka in Sanskrit. It means fixing the awareness on one point. And then when you when the eyes tire, eventually what you're meant to do actually is um, hold the gaze until the eyes water profusely. Was anyone getting tears? Mm. So they say that's actually, that will cure all eye diseases. It's a yogic technique that will actually improve your eyesight, believe it or not. So if you practice it every day, you've got to be vigilant about it, but you can actually correct, improve and strengthen the vision. Mm. But you have to do it until the eyes water. Then you can close the eyes, and then you keep holding the attention on the after image, and that gives you a bit of extra mileage. Uh, beyond the flame, you get a bit more of the, being able to hold the attention. And it's in that act of holding the awareness on one thing, what did you notice about the mind? Mind was empty. Empty? Mm. Not a lot of thoughts. No. No thoughts. No. Anyone else? Get the same. Stillness? Mm. Yeah. So it, it, it's such a simple thing, and yet. What we're consciously trying to do all the time is give the mind lots of things to think about, this sort of stimulation addiction. That is or does the mind want to be stimulated? The mind seeks stimulation. I had a different emotion. I was like very excited about because I thought it was like really cool and I felt like excited that something was... Right. That's good. That's a motivating factor. What did... Um, Nathan say the other day when he had that experience, he said it was a great experience. Even though he knew that he had to go beyond it, there was something really motivating about that, what he, what he discovered. Mm. And now he's so hooked, isn't he? Yeah. And he just wants to keep meditating so what, to see what else he'll find. So that's what we do here. Is, and the beauty of having all these techniques 
is they all lead us back to the same state of that internal like universe that we just go and explore. And eventually we just dissolve into it, don't we? And then what is there then when we dissolve? There's just the nothingness. In the Buddhism, they call it the shunya, the void. Um, but is it really a void? What do you feel? I mean, you've had that a lot of times in Kalyani. What does it feel like to be in the void? Yeah, it's like emptiness. But there's something else, isn't there? Yeah, there's a bliss, there's a stillness, there's just peace. Do you feel energy? That do you feel like there's a presence within that? Oh yeah. So it's sort of void, but it's not void. Mm. That's the paradox with that, with the state, the ultimate state, is that it's beyond it's like all, all knowingness. Yeah, it's beyond everything. It's beyond anything that you can describe, but it doesn't mean that it's nothing. Mm. Yeah. And this it, is, it's a nothing to what we carry with us in the normal life. Right, and that's why we can't describe it, because there's no language, there's no word for it. You know, um, different cultures have got different words for things, and depending on the nature of the environment in which they live, they might have more words. Do you know this idea that Eskimos have 30 different words for snow? Because when you're living in snow, you start to see the subtleties. We might say hard snow, soft snow. They've actually got 30 different degrees of snow or um, instances or variations of snow. And it's only because they're constantly living in it that they can develop a lexicon of, around snow. It turns out that in the Sanskrit, which is the language of yoga, there's 30 different words for consciousness. which gives you an inkling of how much there is to explore in these inner states. That there are slight variations. We have two, I think, awareness and consciousness in English. They're probably the only two I can really think of. So this whole idea of exploration of the inner state is very captivating. Once you, and your experience today validates that, um, Whitney, that you get a buzz, you know, it's exciting because you didn't realise that you could have that experience just by looking at a candle flame. But you see, it wasn't just, you weren't just looking at the candle flame, were you? You were, you were, getting, you were getting some guidance on what to do with that experience. And that's the key to the learning, is that you learn how to apply the techniques. That's, that's why you come here. It's how to apply the techniques. And then you get the immediate and often it's very immediate the result when you get the breakthrough very quick great should we do one more let's see what we can find we we don't have chocolate today but you can use chocolate i'll have some of that too. okay we've done chocolate before haven't we you keep saying that. You can do that one at home. This is a dry, alcohol-free meditation center. It's currently sugar-free as well. Yeah, but we'd make so an exception. No we could make an exception. <laughs> if it's done for higher purposes, it's permissible. Yeah, I'm sure. You should go and live with the Agoris. They drink out of the skull. <laughs> um, that's not our path. But, you know. <laughs> but we, you, shouldn't you try all paths? Well, you can go and live. I can tell you where they are. <laughs> They're actually at the Kumbh Mela right now, right? Probably. They've come down. There's a festival in India right now of yogis. Is it 120 million people? About that. It's the largest gathering of humans on the planet in any one time, and they all go into the river, in the, into the Ganga, is it, at the same time? It's all astrological when you have to go in. And all the Nagas come down from the mountains, all the naked sadhus, and they're smeared with ash. You must have seen, haven't you seen videos on this, on the, the Nagas and the Kumamana? It's fantastic. We're definitely going, 2021. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can go before then, but this is the Kumbh Mela is only every 12 years. Oh, okay. 
but this is a half mailer, right? So they do a half one every six years, a quarter one every three years, but a full one's every 12. So the next full one's in Harwar near Rishikesh, where we were in uh, December and January 2021-22. And if you go, it'll be like 120 million people. Can you, that, that's like, what? more than four times the population of Australia in one place for a month. I think they spread it out of, over a month and everyone gets... It used to be stampedes and completely chaotic, but they realise now, <laughs> because the numbers keep growing every year, that a lot of Westerners are going now because it's just... I've never been, but I've always wanted to go. But uh, that's the idea of the... The Nagas come down from the mountains. All, all meditating the meditating yogis. All the different types of yogis that you can point a stick at you know, with literally, because they have sticks, some of them, and tridents, and they've got their hair and top knots and dreadlocks, and they've got skeins of rajatra beads and ash, and <laughs> they're all, you know, tied up in knots. And, um, <laughs> what do they do then? Everyone just meditates, or...? They, there are all different meditation teachers that are spread throughout with their own followers, so they will bring their group. So I could bring this group, say, and we'd go and we'd create a little uh, compound, tents, or they set up, didn't it, and I'd have grass huts set up. And then um, you just stay there and you just go into the river and you just do meditation. And it's very powerful because everyone's there for the same purpose. So you get the combined effect. We're talking about wine and the gory. So if you want to go and meet some <laughs> wine drinking yogis, but they'll show you the real way to drink wine and it's nothing like how you drink it. <laughs> right, it's all ritualistic and they do mantras over it and all sorts of things. You'll come back and you'll be mm -hmm. the seer of Molimut with the Agori <laughs> practices as well. You'll be able to set up your own centre, seriously. <laughs> but you go see um, Leo at the Molimut Wines and just say, we're going to do a demonstration night of how you really drink wine. And you can be an instructor. I think we should do it. Anyway, I'm getting off the track a bit here, but not fast, not very far off the track. Well, we did this one last week, I think, didn't we? At the oh, maybe the week before. So, when one concentrates on oneself in the form of a vast firmament, you know what a firmament is? It's the open sky. So you contemplate, you imagine yourself as the sky, unlimited in any direction whatsoever. Then the chitti shakti, that's the power of consciousness, freed of all props, reveals herself. Right, so I'll, I'll, let me deconstruct that for you. So the, the concentration of oneself in the form of a vast firmament. So you close your eyes, And you, it says con concentration, but I'd like to say contemplation. That you feel, imagine yourself as, the, as if, let's just say for a moment, that you have the vast sky within you, a vast firmament, firmament, full of stars reaching out into the infinite. And that's in you, right? So that's, that's our starting point. And I think it's very helpful at this point to then start letting the body dissolve and allow the firmament to expand outwards so that it truly does fill the universe. And remembering that you are that. And now it's just this awareness of itself as an unlimited space. So the awareness now. Of itself as infinite. Without boundary, without limitation. Feeling every possible space in the universe and beyond. And then it says, and then 
the power of consciousness, the Chitti Shakti, is now freed of all props. So in other words, the consciousness doesn't depend on anything in this infinite state. The consciousness just exists in its fully expanded form, without effort. And then the translator adds a footnote, he says, remembering that that, that consciousness is none other than your essential self. The aspirant, the seeker, the essential self of the aspirant. So you just basically it's saying, imagine yourself as infinite and then become that infinite state, knowing that that is none other than you. Okay, and then you can return to the room and feel if there's a sense of a little bit of uh, after effect. Did you get some sense of expansion? Mm. That's a bit harder because it is a pure visualization exercise. We don't use any prop, as it were. The music was a prop, the candle was a prop, but this is moving outside of that, using imagination to basically expand consciousness into an imaginary. At first it's imaginary, but then it becomes experiential. This is the beauty of these techniques, is that you start with the mind as an idea, words, instructions. Then as you follow the words and instructions and you allow the technique to occur, then what you get is the actual experience. So the experience is the product of the, of the technique. And that's, that's not imaginary, according to this. It's the true nature is revealing itself to you. And how do you know that that's legitimate? It's because when you come back <coughs> into this state, you feel that there is some some after-effect, you're bringing back into this state some degree of that experience. And that may be peace, or it may just be a little feeling a little more free, or a little more unconcerned. You see how these techniques work? Mm. It's this idea of continual returning to the state of expanded being and and that because why are there 112 techniques why don't they just give one and be done with it yeah it's mainly it's because of why there's so many different yogas it's because people have different tendencies predispositions likes and dislikes and so the ancient teachers understood that you had to offer a smorgasbord it's like if you offer it, you know, you put on a, a feast. These days everyone's on some diet, right? There's something that, there's, I can guarantee if we go around the room and we won't do this, there'll be something that no one, there'll be, there'll be nobody here that doesn't eat everything. Do you eat everything? Everything. Oh, do you? Okay, well I stand And I drink everything. <laughs> okay, well look at you. That's obviously I eat everything. Do you? Yeah. All right. Well, then let's yeah. not say this right. Don't you know a lot of people <laughs> that are not eating something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the yogis sort of say, well, let's just take people as they come and create a whole range of different techniques so that we can, some people might find the internal visualization difficult because their mind just doesn't work that way. But they're a very, um, what could you say? tangible, but they like concrete things. Um, and so for them the candle technique would be perfect because it's something physical that they can relate to. Other people might be very auditorily inclined and the music one was very powerful for them. You see what I'm saying? So we do the whole gamut and then you can decide which ones work for you. But the caveat is the key um, point 
according to the original authors of these sutras, is that any single one of those techniques if practiced seriously will take you all the way to liberation, realization, enlightenment. You own any one of them, they're all equally effective as long as you do them diligently. So if you went home and did chatak on a candle in the, in the way that I described, and in fact what is even more interesting is that they don't even put the full instructions here. They leave it a little bit unsaid, and what happens is your experience comes and fills in the rest. You kind of know what to do, how to take it to the next level. The practice reveals, it's encoded in the practice. It's like the mantras encode a lot of uh, intelligence around what, how the mantra is to act. So the practices encode within them the secret that reveals itself the more that you practice. So if you were to just do that practice... And not meditate. This is meditation. So it leads you to the same state. That's the whole point. This is meditation. It's just another form. Yeah, I mean, mantra meditation is also in, this, in the, the book, which is what we use, because everyone can do it. Hard not to be able to do mantra meditation. And we do the breath mantra, so it's even better because we get the um, combined effect of the two. So it's, yeah, but that's the point. And aren't these different techniques also, uh, not just because there's different types of people, but isn't it also about maybe where you're at or how you're feeling and that maybe you will use a different Yeah, that's true. For yeah, a different I, I forgot to say, that's a good point, that the other reason they have a wide variety is because it gives variety to your practice, that you may be in a certain mood, as you say, how you're feeling on the, on the day, you might be more drawn to try this technique and that technique and it doesn't matter as long as it's leading you into the same state then that, that's the key of importance um, but as a variant of that the variety see if you want to be a long-term practitioner this is my my experience anyway you, you have your core practice that you do every single day without fail. And that's 15, 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes, 90 minutes to whatever you can get up to. But let's just say an hour would be the ideal. And you maintain that once you get to an hour, you just do an hour every single day. Then you may actually feel like you want to do some other things as well, just to surround the core. It's like if you plant a garden, you have the main fixtures in the garden, landscape, and then you might just plant some annual flowers just to add a little bit of colour and a bit of variation. So you do, we do that, not really for any reason, but to satisfy the mind, that it just gives it a little bit, makes it less dry to bring in these other practices as well. Some people do chanting, they chant mantras or hatha yoga or any of those other practices are all there and they're all complementary. All these ancillary practices are all supporting the core practice. So they don't take away from it. In some ways they enrich the practice. So that's why I do a lot of these different things too. But remember we always do the core practice. That's where the main progress gets made. These are enhancements. And also they validate the state. Because you know now that if you can reach the you know, state of peace with a candle, or through music, that there's something in common, that you, some state that you reach that is the same state. It means that if you can get there many ways, then in a way it makes it more, it legitimises it. I don't know if that's, a, if that's a well explained or not. But. Yeah, 
you get into the room through one door and you only ever use one door, you might think that the only way to get to that room is through that door. But if you discover that the house has multiple doors that all lead into the same room, then you know that you can get to that room any way you like. That's sort of the best I can do with the analogy. And I think it makes it, keeps it fun. Otherwise, you know, can you imagine if, if this was really boring? We wouldn't be here. Yeah. It is self-rewarding in the sense that you do feel good. But I think to, to keep it fun is really... It's for the mind, really. The mind, the egoic mind, or would just say boring, you know. This, this is sort of to counter that tendency until the power, what happens then is, after a little while, you start... In the beginning when you start, you feel like you're swimming against the current a little bit. You go to meditate and there's all thoughts and you think, oh, this is too hard. Have you ever encountered that? Yeah. And you really feel like you're pushing something up a hill. <laughs> <laughs> um, occasionally, yeah, but you, you start to realise that that's how it's going to be, is that there'll be days where it's Easy. not flowing so well and other days where it is flowing. Am I right? Um, but then something ha seems to happen along the way, and that is that the current reverses. And now instead of swimming against the current, the current is carrying you. And you, it's called sadhana shakti, or the power of practice. You get a momentum. You could call it habit as well, but I think it's something more than that. You start to develop. The, the, the fact is that the state is so available to you that most of the time, when the moment you get anywhere near it, it just grabs you and pulls you in. Mm. That's where you, and really, sometimes that can, won't take so long for you to get to that. Sometimes there's a powerful awakening if you commit to practices every day, and then maybe it might take months and months, but you just sit down and you meditate every day and just keep keep doing it, and then suddenly there's it can be a very powerful change and you feel very um, a lot of energy within and then that becomes an exciting pathway and you look forward to going to meditate the next day because mm -hmm. it's not a chore anymore it's, mm. it becomes very very powerful that's what happened to Nathan really wasn't it he had that one experience like was it the week after we learned he learned to meditate he went, he went away and he had that experience and he came back and he was all fired up because he had something that was like an awakening of some kind and, and now he's like committed. Mm. There's an intoxication that happens and mm. it sort of flows out into your outer life and everything seems to go well. <laughs> mm. But in terms of this, the reversal of the current, you, you want to get to that point and the way to get there is to just put in the hard yards at the beginning. It's like you've got to break, break through the pain barrier. Of those days we don't feel like doing it, or you're running out of time, or you just think, oh, I won't do it today. Those are the days where you really need to try and do it, mm. even if it's for a few minutes. Um, because it's easy to do something when you feel like doing mm. it, but I think the gain is really in the regularity. And then the gift is, that the current reverses and then you're getting carried along and then it becomes effortless and then you can't not do it. And then eventually it gets even better. The state is there all the time, right? And so there's no more of this duality that you're in it or not in it. So when you first start, I think there's three stages. In the first stage, you immerse yourself in the state for a few minutes a day, you get the experience, you get the after effect for maybe a few hours, and then it wears off. And then you need to do it again, like taking medicine. You need a regular redose. That's stage one. Stage two is that the 
two states integrate and so that the inner experience starts to permeate all out all non-meditative time so that in a sense you have a constant connection with the deep inner peace and it's all and you start to be really calm so that's stage two and then stage three which is the very final stage it's where you're no longer identifying with mind-body at all even though you're carrying one around you're actually so embedded in that that state we we're in before where you become this infinite consciousness you're so much wedded to that that the ego falls away and your experience not just an intellectual idea but your actual experience is that you are that and that's what we call the state of enlightenment or realization or liberation but that comes right at the end but for you, any of you in this room, that could be next week. You just don't know what, how much of the damn wall you have to chip through before the dam breaks. So that's the end game. That's the holy grail. But if you didn't come here for enlightenment, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> you can just take a little bit of peace. Would you be happy with peace for the time being? Would that be enough? Enlightenment's like this concept that... Um, really not. Yeah, it's very, you know, you sort of almost have to not want it before you can have it. It's of that nature. So it's a nice idea. And we're all sort of thinking that, you know, it might happen at some point. The truth is it's right there now. They say that when the sages finally get to that point where the ego dissolves, they're full about laughing for days and days. And when people say, why are you laughing? They say, because... The thing I was searching for was here all the time. They're almost laughing at their own folly, their own stupidity, that they thought it could be something other than what is right there now. So if I told you that now, you could probably even get a sense that there is some aspect, some version of you that is, okay, here's, here's the trick. I was meditating like a month ago or so, I didn't tell you this. And I asked my future self, my future enlightened state, if it could do something to help me get to it quicker. Can you imagine that idea? You know how they say, if you could speak to yourself as a child, what advice would you give? That's a pretty kind of weird concept, but even in quantum physics now, they say that time doesn't, it's really just an artifact, a construct of mind. So that all time, past, present, future, all sits in different dimensions at once. So I'm thinking, well, okay, if that other aspect of me is there now, I want to communicate with it and let it know that I seek to become that now, and can it just do, throw me a lifeline? <laughs> So, so I, can, I actually felt like it laughed and it said, what a stupid question to ask. <laughs> and then when that happened, I understood why the sages laugh when they get the enlightenment. Because it is right there. And we're just not seeing it. It's so there, but we're not seeing it because we've got all these layer, layers of conditioning an ego that are there that are saying, you're not that, it can't be that easy. Mm. But what if it was that easy? Or do you think we say we're not good enough? All of that, definitely. Worse, lack of self-worth, lack of self-love, you know, all the conditioning. But I just thought that was a trip, you know, that you could imagine that you speak to your future self, which exists right now, remember, on another dimension, and you're just saying, show me what to do next but and I thought that that was pretty so like I'm enough in that state at that time I felt that I could do that in a meaningful way that I wasn't this wasn't just a mind game this was actually a process and uh, and so I was very sincere about it 
but also really curious. But it shocked me that the state laughed at me and sort of said, you idiot. Why would you, why would you even think that I'm anything other than what you are now? That's powerful, isn't it? Don't you think that idea is powerful? That your, your actually current enlightened state is right there now? And we just, all we're doing when we come here and when you do your practice is that we're just clearing out everything that's between us and it. Mm. Although, really, there is no distance other than the mind itself. So when you look at it that way, what are we to make of anxiety? Yeah, right, because it's all in the mind. So it's, it's, it's actually, you, it's not really there, it's just something that you make up. It's just a movement. A waste of energy. Hmm. All of those things. Mm. And yet, how easy is it to get caught in that? When you don't have this, when you don't have another perspective, and you think that's all there is, is these linear thoughts, mm. and cause and effect, and you know, loss of control and consequence and other people's opinions, reputation. Mm. There's a lovely quote I once read where anxiety and worry is like when you get bogged and the wheel of your car keeps going round and round and digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. It's yep. like praying for what you don't want. Getting nowhere. Getting that energy and drawing it to you. Yeah, <coughs> you reinforce it. Yeah. You, then you become anxious about being anxious. <laughs> Have you ever had that? I think they call it self-fulfilling prophecy in yeah. psychology. Yeah, um, that's right. So you get what you don't want. Yeah. And the more you don't want it, the more you get it. And isn't that just like when you're meditating and the thought's hanging around and you're trying to fight the thought? Go away, I'm trying to meditate. And the thought comes back at you twice as hard because you're energising it mm. with your awareness. And so I always use the tantrum example, that with the child's having the tantrum, the best thing to do is to distract it. You don't feed the tantrum. tantrum. Mm. You, you say, but look at that. And so what does that mean? That means return to the breath, return to the mantra. What happened to the music? Mm -hmm. oh. I was going into a trance then. Yeah, that's <laughs> nice. Oh, here it is. I think the alarm's going to go soon, another 10 minutes. So, nice. It's soothing. Ah, uh, yeah, so, um, So what is anxiety? It's just movement. And then uh, there's a great quote. There's actually a sutra. I wanted to talk about this today. So there was a very great sage called Patanjali, um, who is so historical, so far back, that there's even debate as to whether it was actually one person at all. So it was. If it was a person, it was probably around 500 BC. But it may have been a lineage, or it may have been a community or a school. But let's just say for the sake of convenience that it was a sage, one person. So he wrote 196 Yoga Sutras. The sutras are, like what I read in Sanskrit, they're just one or two lines uh, of very condensed, form of meaning instructions. And these are the Yoga Sutras, the Patanjali. And the first one is pretty simple, it's just two words. I think it goes Atta Yoga. And now Yoga. So he starts, so now we're going to talk about Yoga. And then the second sutra goes straight to what we were talking about, about what is anxiety. He goes, Yogash, Chitta, Vritti, 
Nirodaha. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. Yoga is the stilling or the cessation of the waves, Vritti, or waves or modifications of the mind. So yoga, the state of yoga or union, is the stilling or is the state which arises when the mind becomes still. So then, let's drill into that. What are vrittis? Vrittis are movements that occur within the field of mind. And we can call them thoughts, that's what thoughts are. Or emotions are also vrittis. And then they can, they can be coloured or uncoloured. That's where they have an emotional content, or maybe they're just an abstract thought. But they're all movements within mind. Do you get that idea? So mm -hmm. if you watch a thought, it's a movement. It comes, goes. So then the third sutra is, I have to read it because I don't remember it. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. The third one is Tada Tada Drashtu Svarupe Vashtanam. Tada Drashtu Svarupe Vashtanam. And it means, and then the seer, that's the yogi, the practitioner, abides in, in his own true nature, or their own true nature. So in other words, if you can still the mind, if you can allow for the waves, the vrittis of the mind to naturally subside through the practices, then you will abide or rest within your own true nature. So what he's saying is that your true nature has got nothing to do with mind. It's that which arises or reveals itself or appears when the mind becomes still, which is what we're going to do in a minute. So what is anxiety? It's a vritti. It's a movement within mind. That's all it is. And so you can imagine that what is beneath the vritti, what have been, what's beneath the waves of the ocean? Currents. And when the currents become still, what is there? But then there's just the ocean, without modification, without movement. And we see that, don't we, when we observe the ocean. It has all these different moods. Mm. It's acted upon by external forces, the wind, or a boat moving through the water. It's an external force. Causes a modification or a movement to the stillness of the surface and then the ocean becomes rough, stormy. You know, as surfers, we look forward to those days when there are vrittis. I'm going to go catch some vrittis, right? Some waves. But um, the, the true nature of the ocean, when it has no external force acting on it, is it's completely still. It's actually anything in nature, when it has no force acting on it, is completely still. When there's no wind, the trees stop moving. So stillness, is a big point coming up here. Stillness is the fundamental nature of things. When there is no external force applied to anything in nature, it returns to stillness. Mm, that's very interesting. Pretty profound, huh? Mm. And, and it gets better. Silence is the fundamental nature of things. Because noise is movement created by vibration. When you remove the, the thing that causes the, the sound vibrations, then nature returns to the underlying state, which is absolute silence. This is why we don't use any effort when we meditate. We shouldn't use any effort. Because effort is movement. To some degree, it's an external force. If you're trying to force a thought away with a thought, you're applying effort, movement. 
If a thought is movement, then your thought that I shouldn't have this thought is also movement. Right? So what do we do? We just move between the thoughts. Like I had this thing today. How was I going to explain this? I don't know which supermarket you shop at. Whichever, whether it's Coles, Woolworths, or Aldi, you have three choices, or IGA, four. You enter the store and you have the objective of going to the dairy cabinet where the milk is. Your objective is to obtain the milk, and that's all you want to do. Well, so you take, and this is a small town, right? So you take two steps into the shop, and what happens? Someone will come up and say, Hey, Brent, how are you going? And you're thinking, I just want to get milk. to the milk. <laughs> so that's why we started ordering, ordering in. There you go. So <laughs> get, the, get the milkman. <laughs> and so then you break free of that conversation and you take another 10 steps and then someone else will come up and say, Norel. And you're going, go away. I gotta get, I'm in a hurry. I gotta get to the milk. And so then and you can see other people ahead that you know. And you know that you're never going to get to the milk if you keep getting interrupted and distracted. And so what do you do? You have to plot a course between the people in a way that... the chocolate. Yeah, or you avoid all the <laughs> temptations. But let's just say the, only, the real obstacle here are people. And so my analogy is that the people are thoughts. The milk is the meditative state that you're trying to reach. And you have to, you can't engage with the people because any form of engagement is delay, is distraction, it's deterring you from the path. And so the, key, the, the strategic milk getter observes the thought field, the field of possible distraction, and plots a course skillfully while not offending anybody. So you might just, and here's, here's the key, you wave to them and keep walking. So there's an acknowledgement. How are you going? And move on. Or smile. <laughs> Make it clear that you're in a hurry and you keep moving. Now that's okay, they can be happy with that because there's an acknowledgement. Because they see you're in a hurry and you move on. So you're moving into the meditative state and a thought comes. So it's the same technique. You just acknowledge the thought and Keep moving. You're plotting a course through the thought field. Not using any effort, you're just going the most efficient way you can using the technique. And what then about you, those times when that thought grabs you? So then you've got to say this. You have to, and that could, that's a very good point, because that's what will happen. You'll go in there and that person will stand right in front of you. So you can't just wave. And so you have to have the smallest conversation you can. And you, for a moment, you might even forget that you were there for the milk. Oh, did you hear about Kalyani? <laughs> she was away for a month. She started her car and it started first time. Aren't those Toyotas wonderful? <laughs> and you go, for that time, this actually happened. And for that time, there's <laughs> not an ad for Toyota. And, and in that moment, you forgot about the milk. So you did actually get hijacked. So then what do you have to do? You've got to go, hang on a minute. What am I here for? Oh, that's right, the milk. So that's the return to the technique. So yeah, sometimes you, it will, the thought will succeed in hijacking you, and then you've got to come back to the mission, to the purpose. And so that's the return. How much effort do you need? Sometimes it takes a lot. Yeah, but I mean, if you don't want to create a conflict, you're going to have to gracefully say, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm in a bit of a hurry. Got to get I some really milk. don't care about Kelly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> don't care about your car. Well, isn't that wonderful? And then you move on. So you see what you're using? Minimum effort to extract yourself from the distraction and return to the technique. That's the, this is all it is. It, the, the main skill actually, and effort is in the return. But what about when there's an emotional pull behind it? Then you've got to use 
So you really want to have a conversation with them? Well, no, just say there's, there's an emotive behind why something keeps popping up, why you can't get over an issue or, or, or something that's troubling you. Do you still need to get the milk? Well, oh, is this, so is this, are you talking way. about not in the shop now, just a general point? Just yeah. a general point, when you're meditating. And so you meditate. you've got an issue happening okay. And, okay. And, okay. Okay. and it keeps popping up and it does need a resolution. So there's that emotion pull behind it because you know that at some stage you have to deal with that and that keeps coming up while you're trying to meditate. Can you deal with it in the waking state? Yeah, but what if you can't resolve it? It's like an issue that can't be resolved that quickly. So can you return to it later? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. So one, one strategy is that you just acknowledge it and say, I'm meditating now, I'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. And that's anxiety, right, when there's no solution yeah. to a problem and you get stuck in a loop and you kind of just take that entire thing and go, whoop, just push it to the side for a minute. So you just, that's one strategy. I'd say that's a pretty good strategy, is that you acknowledge, you, you acknowledge it. I'm not blowing you off, but I'm, I'm getting the milk. To sit down and just wait there while I'll be back and I'm, I promise that we'll sit down and have that discussion. That's the best thing. If, if you don't want to do that, you can just waste, burn half your meditation on the thought and you might get a resolution if you're prepared to do that. But sometimes it does. You do, it, you, you do. You get little breakthroughs. Yeah, don't you? but another thing you can do is you can um, sleep on it. Before you go to sleep at night, you can actually program the question and let the subconscious resolve it. Because a lot of these things, you know, the mind can't, you don't have enough information. You have to draw on something else to get the solution. And this is what overthinking is. Overthinking is believing that we can figure it out for ourselves by thinking about it more and more. And my experience is that some degree of thinking is, is helpful, but overthinking doesn't actually, it's just spinning your wheels. But human like nature, where our brains are designed to be problem fixers. So if we can't find a solution to the problem, we like it, it's very unsettling, and that's when you get anxiety and stuff. So exactly. So then, what do you have to do? Step back. Give give yourself a break. Mm. This is the key because I think, and, and this is something that's in the literature, is that um, some my my alarm didn't go off, but we'll meditate in a minute. Um, most solutions are found in the silos. The real, if you want the real inspiration, the real answer to the question, you're not going to get that. You may need some preliminary thinking just to set up the problem, and then you have to let it go and wait for the. This is why you get your best ideas in the shower or mowing the, the lawn. Yeah, you have to put it to bed. Just let it, set it up, make the intention that you need a solution, and then release it. That's a better, more reliable way. I teach innovation to executives sometimes. And if you're trying to problem solve at a very high level, the best thing you can do is let it go, leave it. Do the preparatory work. I'm not saying you just ignore it. You do as much as you can do with thinking, but then you have to reach a point where you say, we're just gonna put it away now and just go into, just go into a meditative state or something where you can just release it and then the answer will come like light, light, a lightning ball, a thunderbolt. So that's that's another strategy to address the nagging emotional problem that won't otherwise go away. So you do you do need to deal with problems, but you don't necessarily have to deal with them in the way that we're dealing with them by thinking, overthinking, ruminating. Fixating. Okay? So that's some practical advice on. And maybe there's part of like um, being not comfortable but being in the uncertainty. Like some problems won't ever be solved because you'll never have all the information. There'll always be this tingling thing that pops up and you just have to live with the uncertainty and maybe kind of feel comfortable somehow exactly. in that space. That's a great point. We, we sort of feel like we have to lock down every aspect of our lives mm. in order to be okay. But what about if we could just accept? This is what acceptance is. 
which is that really the doorway to peace is through acceptance. Acceptance of, and when we meditate now, just remember that. Accept that for the time being, we're going to just allow things to be. We're not trying to boil the ocean, you know, take on every task and make every aspect of our lives perfect today. Why don't we just go easy on ourselves? My teacher used to say, our teacher used to say, be kind to yourself. You know, it's not about winners and losers or some idealized idea of what has to be in order for your life to be perfect. What if you could just be okay for the moment? Get, find some peace. Peace is the most valuable asset. If you had the choice between all the money in the world and a, and a, and a state of constant discontent and disharmony, or you had perfect peace and maybe just enough to get by, which would you choose? No-brainer. It is, isn't it? Mm. And yet, how much of our effort do we dedicate towards the former, to acquisition? And you know, I'm not saying a certain level. I mean, the, the um, positive psychologist like Csikszentmihalyi, Chik he's a, a Czechoslovakian with an almost unpronounceable name, but he invented the concept of flow states. He, he did surveys on happiness and found that most people, as long as they're earning enough, so I'm not talking about people below the poverty line that are truly suffering, but once you're earning a sufficient amount that you, you're comfortable, you can pay the bills, you're not stressing about money, the level of happiness between that person and the richest person in the world hardly increases at all. Below that point, yeah, absolutely, you can be destitute and desperate and it's not nice. So he's, so what flows from his flow, to use the, uh, not deliberate use of his terminology, what flows from that is uh, that once you've attained a certain level of material comfort, you should be investing in other um, forms of self-development beyond material acquisition. And in fact, then your happiness levels will go up. Mm. So once you take care of the basics, then you should do stuff like this. This is what will increase your happiness level because happiness is always internal. And now I have to stop because I do want to allow time to meditate. So that was a great discussion. Thanks for your input. Any other final questions or observations? Before we head for the milk. Great. So remember what I said about when you encounter thoughts. So as we go into meditation now, I mean, even what we've been talking about might reverberate in there for a while. You just let those thoughts be and return to the technique gently. Just acknowledge the thought and move back. Minimum effort. Moving to that state of minimum energy. Great.